Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 27 with me. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right. A huge moment, beautiful story, convicting message. Levi, also known as Matthew, the one who would write the gospel of Matthew, which we've studied, is wealthy. And there's this sense of betrayal among the Jewish community for someone who would collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Moreover, it stinks to be a tax collector because you're despised. And these guys had a common practice of collecting more than people actually owed and keeping the overage for themselves. John the Baptist, while speaking, we saw this in our, uh, I think our second sermon in this series, would speak to a crowd and some people would ask him, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Some soldiers ask him what they should do. Tax collectors ask him, what should we do? He advises these tax collectors in particular to not collect more than what is owed. And these guys all had lined their own pockets with money taken, appropriating the authority of what was seen as an invasive Roman government. That political tension was palpable, and uh, these guys capitalized on it. Levi, or Matthew, was one of those guys until, until this moment. So we've seen the healing of the paralyzed man. We can't call him that anymore. Uh, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. So he's right there at work. He's probably surrounded by piles of his own people's money taken with the full force and coercion of the Roman Empire. And he said to him, follow me. This is the same invitation that was given to Peter. It's the same inv invitation that's given to the disciples. The same invitation that was given, by the way, to the rich young ruler. Now, here's the critical difference between Levi or Matthew and the rich young ruler. Levi was rich too. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. And then he hosts a grand banquet at his house. This indicates that it was all on Levi's dime. It was on, it was on, Matthew spent his own money to do this. The rich young ruler was given the same invitation that all the disciples were given. He could have been the 13th disciple, if you will. But Jesus knew that the money was Lord in that man's life. He went away sad because money was his Lord and he couldn't give it away. But the very first thing that Matthew did upon being called was to spend his money, leave the tax office, leave everything behind, host a party, bring other tax collectors there that they would meet with Jesus. The very first thing that he does is he makes financial sacrifice. He leaves that lucrative living behind and then he immediately begins to 
evangelize. Look at the difference. Contrast Matthew with the rich young ruler. And you can see that the difference is repentance. The difference is that Jesus is Lord. Whereas for the rich young ruler, money was his Lord. It was the one thing he was unwilling to give up. So he's given that invitation and he leaves everything behind. That was incredibly costly. It's partly why it's hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would use the example of a camel going through the eye of a needle, this tiny little hole right at the end of a needle. It's so hard for the wealthy to be saved. I think that's a big part of why evangelism is particularly difficult and why we are tilling hard soil here near Seattle. It's not just the liberalism, like culturally and in terms of thought, it's also because of the great wealth. Uh, they're incredibly wealthy people. And incredibly wealthy people really trust in their wealth. Now that's, that's ultimately foolish because money can go like that. But I mean, just even now, like as inflation rises, the money that's in their bank accounts is all becoming less and less valuable. But they tend to trust in that wealth and look at the wealth that they've accumulated for themselves and say, you know what? I think I've got it together. There's a, a strong delusion that uh, can tempt wealthy people into looking at what they've accomplished and thinking to themselves, I've got it together in a way that other people don't. And what that totally precludes is the thought that other people might forego the pursuit of wealth in favor of a higher calling and a purpose, something that doesn't really include wealth, or wealth doesn't mean everything to everybody. And because this is the way that they may tend to think about themselves and about their wealth, it's the one thing they won't give up. There's something similar in the hyper-intelligent. Um, it's funny, when you look at a breakdown of uh, the worldviews of geniuses, genii, Anybody with, with an IQ of like 135 or above uh, would kind of fit this category. There's like one dude I know of with an IQ of over 200, maybe another little kid too. I'm not sure if that's verified. But uh, when you look at a breakdown of the genie high and you just kind of take that top, you know, 2% of human intelligence as measured by an IQ test, the, the factor is G, meaning general intelligence. Okay, I don't believe that there are categories of intelligence. I just don't. Like there's this thing called G and it's used in the bell curve to evaluate just general human brain processing power. And when you take that top slice of the 2% and you look at it, the majority of them are atheists, especially those who have an IQ of like 135. Okay. Those are the people who barely made it into Mensa. Like they... <laughs> Like they almost got bounced at the door. <laughs> and from that first chunk, as you move from the bottom of the 2% up to the top, suddenly something changes. And the hyper-intelligent among the hyper-intelligent are all Christians. And it's because if you have an IQ of 135, you're smart enough to know that you're really smart. And that intelligence breeds pride. And pride is an anathema to the gospel, which calls upon us to do the opposite what pride does. Pride was like the thing that prompted original sin. It was what caused Lucifer to fall. It's this high estimation of one's own self. And that pride, not intelligence, pride is what causes uh, a large majority of, of geniuses to be, to be atheists. But then as you get to the highest 
echelon, the, the apotheoses, if you will, of the genius bracket, they're all Christians. They're all Christians because at some point they become aware of how little we actually know and they have the guts and they have really, frankly, like just the, the gravitas to say like, no, we're not that smart. <laughs> you know, like we, you, you're good at IQ tests and you're good at quizzes and you're good academically and you can learn things well. That's really great. You've got a big bucket. And that's, I think that, that more is expected of you. Other people can accomplish more than you, even with smaller buckets, they just take more trips to the well. Okay. They have a humility about them that comes in that self-awareness where they're actually truly smart enough to see uh, the truth of things. Like, look, God's eternal power, his divine nature, it's been clearly seen through what's been made. We're without excuse. They don't avoid the question of ultimate origins. They're not haunted by it. They, by the Holy Spirit of God, have confessed that Jesus is Lord. These tax collectors left everything behind. This tax collector, Matthew, left everything behind. He sacrificed it all. That lucrative career is just gone. And then he immediately, upon resigning from his post, spends more money. And he does all of it in the name of getting his friends to come to Jesus in hopes that they would just meet Jesus. They were all very wealthy too. The wealthy, the hyper-intelligent, the uh, successful in a worldly sense, by a worldly metric, they, they suffer from pride. And that pride is a huge barrier to the gospel. Uh, typically, friends of mine who I've seen come to Christ over the years, who fit those descriptors, they come to Christ at a time of great need. Uh, tragedy will strike. You know, there have been people I've shared the gospel with and they get, they, they, they'll shoot me down. I've been shot down way more times than I've actually seen people come to Christ. And I think that's a good indicator that I'm sharing the gospel at least enough. <laughs> you know, uh, if somebody gets saved absolutely every single time you share the gospel, you may not be sharing the gospel enough. But what happens is this seed of the gospel is planted. The Holy Spirit begins to germinate that seed in their hearts, and then, and then something happens. Uh, I've been the guy that you call. My wife is the woman that you call, for example, when someone's child dies, because we've been through that. And in those moments, they know that the, the hope of the gospel is there. They can see the truth. They just suppress it to get away with wickedness. And then when something tragic happens, it's like that wall around their hearts has just been bulldozed down by the by this wrecking ball. And in their humility, the Holy Spirit draws them unto salvation. I pray that it doesn't take that for my hyper-intelligent friends, for extremely wealthy friends, for very successful people like those around the Seattle area. Look at look at the takeaway at the end. The Pharisees are questioning, they're complaining. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's funny, why even ask this? If they have a low opinion of Jesus, why do they care, you know, those, those with whom he associates? But Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, bottom line right there is that word repentance, but I want to go backwards and, and I want us to have a takeaway from this because I believe that it's important. He uses the word righteous and he uses the word healthy to refer to the Pharisees and their scribes, but they're not actually righteous. 
They're the ones who would kill Jesus for crying out loud. Here's the thing. When people think that they're healthy, they don't go to the doctor. These Pharisees thought of themselves as healthy. They thought of themselves as righteous. And so does the majority of the culture in the Seattle area. They think of themselves as righteous. They think of themselves as more righteous than the Christian right. They think of themselves as culturally enlightened. They think of their progressive sexual ethics as something that is a moral good. They think of their politics as a way of helping people, even though we stink at helping homeless people in this city. We have some of the worst homeless problems in America, and it's, it's typical of liberal cities like San Francisco and, and LA and Seattle. Here we are. But much of it, much of liberal politics I've found, especially since living here, is all about projecting righteousness, not about actually doing good. It's about looking like you want to help. And it's about virtue signaling. The problem with virtue signaling is that it's poison for your soul. You are casting out an image that's polar opposite of the truth of who you are. You're doing absolutely nothing. Virtue signaling accomplishes nothing at all. No one has ever been helped by someone else's virtue signal. And yet that is the sole basis of all of liberal politics. I say that as a resident of King County, Washington. That's the whole basis. That's the whole political motive. I want to appear in lockstep and virtuous and righteous according to this very tenuous and fluctuating worldview. If they just look like they care, that's all that really matters to them. It doesn't matter that we're doing a way worse job of helping the homeless as a city than heavily conservative cities do. It just matters if they look good. They want to project that view of righteousness and they virtue signal I believe that virtue signaling is the modern day pharisaicalism. Like modern day Pharisees are the virtue signalers because their hearts are far from God. They want to project an image. They don't actually accomplish anything and they're never going to be done virtue signaling. It's also a very legalistic faith, kind of like the Pharisees. Virtue signaling is a very, very demanding legalistic religion because you're required. Anytime something happens, you're required to project out on social media your stance. This bad thing is bad. Hashtag solidarity. And everybody knows the bad thing's bad. We, we don't need other people to pile on and say bad thing is bad. We all know that the bad thing is bad. The fact that we have a moral compass at all, that we have consciences that can detect moral goodness and moral evil indicates that somebody wrote a law as to what is good and, and what is evil and that moral lawgiver is god but this is never done you're never finished virtue signaling even though it's completely an impotent act you're never done doing it you'll never be finished and if you miss an opportunity to call a bad thing bad then you get called out for that you get publicly shamed the Pharisees loved these public shaming rights. So do modern day liberals. It is like mob justice, mob retributive justice, where we publicly shame 
and the sinners pick up stones to throw stones at someone else for what is perceived to be sin, that's considered justice, and there's no redemption. There is no redemption within liberalism. You will not be forgiven. You will be blacklisted. You will become a pariah, an outcast among your own. And they will eat each other. Have you seen this politically? It, it happens, and it's happening, and it's never going to get better until the gospel. Because there's no concept within this kind of liberal thinking that's pervasive in this area where people are very wealthy, they're very successful, so they think of themselves as morally good, and there's no grace in that worldview. There is no redemption. Uh, do you get why we call the church the redemption church? What it, what it necessarily calls for is an admission. I'm not healthy. I'm not righteous. Rather than signaling out how virtuous we are at the redemption church, we confess how sinful we have been. Because people who are healthy don't go to the doctor. What is necessary as we pray for revival in this area is the Holy Spirit's conviction on the hearts of our fellow sinners who live here in Seattle, who think of themselves as quite righteous. There's something else too. The Redemption Church is not the only church in the greater Seattle area. There are not nearly enough churches. We need more churches. By the way, if you're watching this and you feel like God's called you to plant a church, please come here because every single church in King County could double in size and we'd still only be reaching single digit percentages of the people who live here. We need more churches, but some of those churches have taken to revising, correcting Jesus on this right here, repentance. If there is talk of revival and the word repentance is totally absent, what you're seeing is not a call for revival at all. Jesus told the woman at the well, go and sin no more. It's a popular phrase. It's okay to not be okay. And I get where that's coming from. It's great. But we don't stay that way. There's actually redemption. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit of God that you can then walk in repentance from your sin. When we remove repentance from the gospel and we affirm sinners in their sin, and we try to take a version of the gospel that somehow fits with the overall pervasive mindset of the Seattle area where it's like, Jesse, don't, don't, don't preach a gospel that, that includes repentance because that means that people who have lived their entire lives in the gay lifestyle suddenly have to repent from that. No, you know, let's just tell them, let's just tell them that God's okay with homosexuality. Let's just rip 1 Corinthians 6 out of our Bibles. Let's just rip Romans 1 out of our Bibles. Let's just rip Genesis 18 and 19 out of our Bibles. And let's frankly lie to them and act like God's okay with that particular sin. And then when other, another sin du jour comes up, we're going to have to rip those pages out of our Bibles. And, and what we've done is now presented them with a religion that's no longer Christianity. Because follow me on this, if you change something, it will be different. So repentance is critical. Without repentance, we're not sharing the whole gospel, right? God has wrath for sin. But he has grace for sinners who repent by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to help our friends here see the deep need that they have for the gospel. Because when people think that they're healthy, they don't go to the doctor. Would you, like Matthew, like Levi, invest your wealth in the kingdom 
bringing your fellow tax collectors to eat with Jesus? Would you not be afraid to be associated with people who are far from God? If your whole life is surrounded by nothing but Christians, get out of the bubble and go to where the sick are. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. So let's begin with our own sin and let's invite others to the table with Jesus. Amen.